Hey, how's it going? Great, glad to hear it. My name's Jeremy Ullman. I'm the host of this podcast, Abstract, colon, The Future of Science. So what's this all about? There are thousands upon thousands of graduate students all across the world, and I'm trying to tap into their knowledge they have gained in their research over the last one to seven years. We recorded this in the past, you're listening to it in the present, and you're learning about the future. So, what better time than now to enjoy a quick episode of Abstract. Hope you enjoy. Hey, welcome back to Abstract. Hope you're doing well. Before we hop into things, here's a quick list of the kind of questions you can expect to be answered on today's episode. So, is music more of an art or a science? Can we tell the difference between human-made and artificial music? What makes music complex? And how do you even quantify complexity? How do we differentiate the same note played on different instruments? How do we measure musical learning? Who are the better predictors of melody, jazz, or classical musicians? And, of course, is language learning anything like learning a musical instrument? Answers to all these and more questions on today's episode, so let's go! Alexander Albury is a PhD student working in the Penhune Laboratory for Motor Learning and Neuroplasticity at Concordia University in Montreal. A native of Nassau, Bahamas, Alex completed a Bachelor of Arts in Psychology from the University of the Bahamas and a Master of Arts in Social Sciences from the University of Chicago before starting his second Master's at Concordia. His current research is at the intersection of music, psychology, neuroscience, and computer science. Alex studies how complexity and predictability in music affects how much we enjoy music and how much this relationship affects how we learn to play an instrument. He does this with a combination of behavioral, neuroimaging, and eye-tracking methods. Besides his own research, Alex is broadly interested in psycholinguistics, neuroscience, data science, and machine learning. Outside of research, Alex is passionate about mentoring and science communication, and can often be found teaching workshops on programming for data science. In his additional free time, Alex plays guitar and piano, and is an avid gamer. So I'm super excited to have Alex on the podcast today. Alex, how's it going? Hey, Jeremy. I'm good. How are you? I'm doing great. Very happy to have you. Just uh, for listeners, just so you know, I actually met Alex when I was doing my master's degree. And so we were taking a couple of classes together. And well, here we are now, just over a year and a half later. So I'm really interested in getting your opinion on this right away. As a music researcher and as a musician yourself, is music more of an art or more of a science, in your opinion? So... I'll just go with my first thought, like my knee jerk reaction to that is to say it's more of an art. I uh, think okay. like, we can turn music into a science and use science to look at music, but I think it starts out as an art, at least where we are now, maybe sometime in the future, we're, we're getting to a point where they're sort of merging of music as an art and music as a science. What are we currently missing? Or what do you think we're going to be able to obtain or know in the future that's going to really strike this this more 50-50 balance? I think we're getting to a point where we understand the parts of music that affect how people experience music and how people react to music. And when we really start to understand those little bits and like what makes music 
good or what makes music enjoyable, at the point that we can quantify that, it kind of becomes a point where we can easily simulate quote-unquote organic music using, say, computational methods or more quantitative methods. So you think once we can actually fully simulate music, then that that's when we'll kind of pass this threshold where music will effectively become the product of some kind of scientific endeavor? I think at that point that will be possible. Like, it could be. I would say I probably don't think science is ever going to replace organic music as an art. I don't, even with whatever technology we have, I don't know if we'll get there. I mean, at, at this point, I know there is, there's artificially composed music that I've heard of before. I think it's probably pretty decent. I think as far as classical music, there have been tests that show people can't really tell the difference. Mm -hmm. So we may be there already, but I don't think it's ever going to replace real organic music. If you could pinpoint it, what is the je ne sais quoi that humans have that maybe a machine learning program doesn't? And how would you even label that? Like, is it something like creativity or is it spontaneity? I mean, what really differentiates us at that fundamental level from the computer? Yeah, I've, I was going to say spontaneity, but I think that could potentially be uh, simulated too. I think... <laughs> But I do think this comes into play a lot for live music specifically. So mm. the interactions between uh, musicians playing together, between musicians and the audience, I think that can play a big role. So I guess maybe that doesn't bode well for pre-recorded music. <laughs> right. I mean, I do like a really well-recorded studio album myself. Sometimes they can provide just as much enjoyment as yep. a live concert, if done properly. So in the introduction, we talk about complexity and predictability in music. I want to break these down a little bit more because they haven't really been broken down much yet. So how would you describe complexity in terms of music? What does that mean? What is encompassed by the word complexity? Whenever I explain this, I, I kind of have to try to keep myself on track because they're all like very, very interconnected, like complexity and predictability mm -hmm. and also expectancy. So I'll try to keep those straight as I go through. Sometimes I use them interchangeably, but complexity in the way that I see it or in the way that I use it in my research is basically less predictable music is more complex. So complicated music is going to be harder to follow or maybe more unexpected. Music that is simpler or not complex is probably going to be very predictable. There's not going to be a lot of weird changes or things you don't expect. So I think that's a good summary is that as complexity goes up in music, predictability of the music goes down a bit. Complexity seems like it's more inherent to the music itself, and complexity would exist outside of any human observation, but predictability here feels a lot more like a, kind of a human judgment. Right, yeah. So there's got to be something like that's that's kind of differentiating them at, at a fundamental level, if you know what I mean. Yeah, I know what you mean. So based on uh, at least the research I do and what's common in research now, the idea being that Within a certain culture or within, say, Western music that we listen to, we've become used to like very similar patterns. Like we, we may not be aware of them, but in general, like you know what music is supposed to sound like. You recognize music when you hear it. 
you might recognize music from another culture as being from another culture when you hear it because it sounds different. So typically because we go through our lives hearing music everywhere, in a cafe, on the street, on the bus, whether we want to or not, we're going to hear music. Hmm. So we actually have these internal expectations of what music is supposed to sound like. And so whether like these expectations are confirmed or denied is kind of where the uh, predictability comes in and where complexity comes in. Like really, really complex music is probably not going to be your typical music that you're used to hearing. It's going to have weird changes. It's going to have things that uh, it may sound good or bad, but it's probably going to deviate a bit from what you're used to. Okay. I really like that we've brought in the the cultural side of this because I guess in a sense, what I see to be less predictable music might not be inherently unpredictable. It, it might be totally normal to the ears of someone from a different culture or from a, a different location on the planet. Yeah, yeah, definitely. There's uh, it, culture matters. There's some research that shows that like, genre experience matter, like differences between classical musicians and jazz musicians. So the experience definitely comes into play. But I think underlying all of that, there are some commonalities across uh, music genres and even music from different cultures, maybe. What's your background like musically? You said that you're a guitarist and a pianist. Do you have more classical training, jazz, neither, both? I guess probably more classical training. Your typical Western music books that you that you get when you're a kid. So mm -hmm. yeah, I'd say mostly classical, if not like Western nursery rhymes and hymns, things like that. So you were exposed to music as a young child then, or no? Not really. I didn't start learning music until like early teens. So okay. I guess I, I was as a child, I was exposed to music as much as anyone else is exposed to music. Okay. And then you took it into your own hands in the teenage years. Yeah, I guess so. Okay. And you've been playing guitar and piano since then. Sporadically. Yeah. <laughs> on, okay. on and off of like playing it and like taking lessons sometimes here and there. There's like gaps. Is there an instrument that you've always wanted to play that you haven't yet picked up? Yeah, so like assuming I had infinite time and was satisfied with both my piano and guitar skills, which I'm still not, I guess I would either want to play violin or drums. Okay. Very similar instruments. Uh, <laughs> yes, <laughs> almost identical in terms of the way that they make sounds. Speaking of which... Let's talk a bit about sound, because you must know a whole lot about sound if you're studying music and how, I guess, maybe humans perceive music. From what I know, the different instruments are perceived completely differently from one another. For example, a violin can play an A note, and a piano can play an A note, and a guitar can play an A note, but we're going to be able to identify the fact that they are all coming from different sound sources. How do we do that? Yeah, so... That's one of the things that's really hard about the research that I do, basically looking at, say, complexity in music based on, let's just say, uh, pitch, which is different notes in a piece of music. A piece of music yeah. has various notes. It's easy to look at a piece of music as a series of notes with letter names, and there's different combinations of notes. That's pretty easy to, say, encode or study, but all of these really subtle details, like, like you mentioned, differences in instruments, for example, 
That difference in sound is what we call a timbre. Here, the difference that two instruments play the same note, but they sound different. And so a challenge in my research is that you can't sort of encode that in a computer. It's kind of, at least as far as I know, people are working on that, but it's kind of hard to simulate that and to study that. So that's a huge limitation for what I do is that I can only look at the basics of like a note as a name on a piece of paper. Hmm. I can't really get to the small details of how a specific note sounds. Sure, we can do that. Maybe I guess you can do that by comparing people's reactions to different types of music or different instruments. And that's an indirect way to do it. But it's it can be pretty hard to study those subtle differences between sounds. I think I'm starting to see where a more flushed out answer is coming in to our earlier question about whether music is more of an art or a science. This, right. this notion of timbre seems like it's really getting in the way. Where yeah. timbre is muddying the muddying the waters here. We could very easily create some sinusoidal wave that is the right frequency that we perceive it to sound like any note we want. But then timbre comes in, and then we lose the ability now to actually properly imitate specific instruments or specific sound sources. Right, yeah. And in I mean and in most organically performed music by musicians, things like timing, we can assume that music is has a certain time a certain beat and that's true for the most part but if you listen to any musician play and if you study what they play there are like millisecond differences between how people play music if you look at two musicians perform the same piece they may play it on time in the same way but there's going to be differences in how they perform that right now what i've seen those small differences from a research perspective, are kind of hard to bring in. Are those small differences the kind of things that affect the way that we interpret and experience and enjoy music? Or is there something else? I My guess would be yes. <laughs> you, you don't necessarily need that. There are things in music, inherent in music, patterns. So if even if you just look at the notes, just look at different pitches, how music is organized, you ignore all of the very important things like timbre and subtle timing differences. I think there are still differences in complexity and say expectancy in a piece of music that affect how we experience music. So I think those alone affect how we experience music. I absolutely think that things like timbre come into play, but uh, right now, at least for me, I haven't got to a point where I can study that scientifically yet. Mm -hmm. So can you kind of run me through what one of your experiments looks like in terms of the design? Let's say I'm a participant in one of your studies. Are you at yep. liberty to discuss what that would kind of feel like, what that would look like? Yeah, easy. I can. This will be a combination of things I do and things that other people do that are like similar to what I do. Yeah, sure. So basically where I start with is expectancy in music, complexity in music, and how that affects how we like music. So the question is, how do we measure complexity in music? It's very easy to say that, but how do we quantify or put a number to musical complexity? Mm -hmm. And so recent research and recent methods have found that using machine learning methods, we can, say, feed a, an algorithm or a computer a bunch of 
Western music and have it trained and learn to pick up the regularities and patterns in music. And then you can give it a new piece of music and it can actually generate predictions for every note in that piece of music. So for every note, it can say, how likely was this note to happen? What was the probability that this note happened compared to all of the other notes that could have happened at this point in the okay. piece of music? Let's <laughs> go. Cool. Note, for a more general, albeit in-depth discussion on machine learning, check out episode seven with Jacob Buckman. And that's where we get our complexity measure. So if at any point in a piece of music, we say we take one specific note and the algorithm finds that this note had a very, very high probability to show up here. It was very likely. That probably means it wasn't very complex because there was a high chance that this note was going to happen here. If a note has a low probability of happening at that point, then it's more complex because it's sort of more surprising, less likely to have happened. It kind of jumps out compared to everything else. Mm -hmm. So that's the start with how we quantify music. And as sort of a sanity check, what we do is we also have persons listen to the same piece of music and ask them to rate either the piece as a whole or certain notes by expectancy. So how expected was this note? How predictable was this piece of music on, say, a basic scale from one to seven? And what happens is that if you compare human ratings of expectancy or predictability to the output from the algorithm of a probability of notes, they actually match up pretty well. So that's a good sanity check to say that we can actually sort of simulate what persons are expecting when they listen to music. That's cool. Okay, so so this is kind of the background that we need now to understand how it is that this algorithm is trying to simulate what actual human beings would think about a particular sequence of notes. Right, yeah. So I'm coming into your lab. You sit me down in a chair. What am I doing? What are you trying to find out? From a basic sense, you could do this maybe not even in the lab, but say we have pieces of music, either organic pieces of music that we've chosen for the study, or in many cases, what I do, we make uh, artificial melodies or brand new melodies. And basically, we have people listen to it. We have them give ratings for what they thought about it, how predictable was it, how much did they like the piece of music. And then we compare those ratings to the algorithm that I talked about before to see how well the predictions from the algorithm match up to predictions from human listeners. And so that's the start of it and what's been done a few times now. And in terms of liking, what you see is that when you ask people how much did they like a piece of music and then compare that to how uh, predictable or complex it is, what you find out is sort of like an inverted U-shape where there's a sweet spot in the middle where persons like music that is sort of at a middling level of complexity. So really low complexity music like music that's really simple is probably boring. People don't like it that much. When you get to really highly complex music, it's probably too complicated to follow. It has strange jumps here and there. You can't figure out what's going on. But what we found out is that sort of in the middle where music like conforms to expectations just a little bit, but also deviates a little bit, that's where we get the highest liking ratings for music. Cool. Yeah, it's like a Goldilocks zone of enjoyment. Yeah. 
I feel like in psychophysics, right, like the measurement of kind yep. of, uh, you know, how we how we perceive physical phenomena, I feel like this inverted U shape is very common. It is. Where yeah. even, even like, let's say for loudness, if things are very quiet, it, it's kind of even hard to discern what exactly we're listening to. So maybe the enjoyment of, of, of a very quiet stimulus, unless you're in a library, right, might be just kind of minimal. And then something's too loud, it'll actually be painful. But right in the middle, where people probably mostly listen to music or this podcast, is this something that's like a good volume, but not too loud or not too quiet. Yeah, definitely. That just like you said, that inverted U shape shows up in a lot of areas for like this sort of middle Goldilocks zone that you said that's just right. Mm -hmm. If there are any uh, high school students listening right now, you might have seen the inverted U shape in the quadratics unit of your math class, in which case it would be modeled by something like y equals negative ax squared. Just an aside for the high school students out there. This just in first giveaway on abstract. Okay, it's not a huge giveaway, but the first the fifth and the tenth person to send me an email at abstractcast at gmail.com will receive a special little something from me, abstract-themed. You're gonna love it. It'll be personalized. Facebook message is also okay. Also Twitter, also Instagram, also voice message on Anchor. It could be any commentary, good, bad, or ugly about this episode or any other. Good luck. Yeah, so we were, I, I guess, talking about what it might be like to come into the lab or what I yeah. what I do. So I, I've talked a little bit about this relationship between complexity and liking, how there's a sort of Goldilocks zone of complexity that people like the most. And uh, that's been done pretty frequently in the last 10 years. And so I'm also doing that, but I'm sort of extending that in what I do to see how this relationship between complexity and liking affects how we learn to play music. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, so that's where the motor learning portion of my lab's title comes in. So yeah. specifically, I'm looking at how people learn to play, say, a short melody on the piano, just because that's the easiest. Like, the piano is built for experimental psychology. It's literally, it's literally buttons. <laughs> it's true. It's true. Yeah. I remember using button boxes for my experiments and a bunch of experiments in my lab and the piano is just a glorified button box. Nothing against pianos and pianists. <laughs> Y'all are excellent. Keep doing what you do. Piano, beautiful instrument, but hey, buttons, that's pretty solid. So you have a piano in your lab? Yeah, we have a couple. Typically what we use are just the really small MIDI pianos because we don't... Yep. We're not doing anything super complex that needs 88 keys. <laughs> sure. So let's say I come into the lab, but I, I, I don't play piano. Am I in the yep. wrong place? Like, do you, only, do you only have people come into the lab who have a certain level of expertise? Are you even looking to see how music learning changes over the course of your music learning experience, like over, over the course of years and how much experience you have? Right. No, so we definitely... At least what I'm doing now, I'm focusing exclusively on non-musicians oh. because I kind of want people that don't have too much background or too much expectations for how for how this works. So what I look at now is completely non-musicians. Uh, other people in my lab have looked at musical experience across the lifespan. So we definitely there's definitely a range of the types of people that we will look at. Okay, but your focus is for lack of a better word, noobs. Right. 
for, <laughs> for now. Okay, excellent. So what have you found so far? If you can divulge that information, how does complexity and predictability in music affect the relationship we have with learning an instrument? And how can you even measure learning over a single or even a couple of sessions? Right. So yeah, that's what I'm doing now. We've had some studies of, say, uh, melody learning in the lab. And what we've found out is that for non-musicians, it's actually pretty hard. So uh, mm-hmm. it, it's a lot to expect people to come in and like, hear a melody a couple times and then remember it enough to play it well. In terms of accuracy, one, there's raw accuracy. So for any given note or part of a piece of music, did they play the right note at this point? Other than that, there's also asynchrony. So basically the difference between when a person was supposed to play this note, when they were supposed to press that key, and when they actually pressed that key, and the the difference in time in milliseconds. So assumingly, if you're really, really good as far as timing and you've learned it well, you should play it almost perfectly in terms of when you were supposed to play that key. So that's what we do for accuracy. And I think I lost the last part of your question, if you want to nudge well, me. Sure, yeah. So I'm, I'm just essentially trying to figure out what the relationship is now between complexity, enjoyability, right. and then the actual learning aspect. How do we measure learning, really? You So right. one of the ways is through accuracy. Right. So accuracy and uh, asynchrony is probably the easiest way so far. So we're still pretty early on right now. What we have seen basically is as music becomes more complex, it becomes harder to learn, which is what, what you might expect. What we're looking to see is if we see that inverted U-shape again that we see with liking and complexity with performance or learning and complexity. So do people learn melodies that are sort of in the middle in terms of complexity a little better than they might really boring melodies or really complicated melodies? And then also, how does liking factor into that? I can't imagine that we'd find an inverted U-shape there. I don't want to rain on your parade here, but yeah. if I may, enjoyment is, from from what I can tell, not an effortful endeavor. Yeah. But learning is. And generally, humans are trying to minimize effort. And so technically, we would probably want to minimize the effort in learning as well and would probably find it easier to learn simpler melodies. Why do you maybe think that that wouldn't be the case? Yeah, so as far as the simple relationship between uh, complexity and learning, I think you're probably you're probably right. I, I expect that to be like a simple linear relationship as, as you get more complicated, it gets harder to learn. Now, when you add in the liking or enjoyment into that as, say, another factor, we've definitely found that some of the differences between highly complex melodies and simple melodies can disappear at different levels of liking. My memory's a little fuzzy on the results, but like I said, what we found is that how much you like a piece of music definitely affects how well you learn it and affects that relationship between complexity and performance. So yeah, complexity and performance on its own, probably pretty clear cut, but adding in uh, complexity, performance, and liking together kind of has some opportunities there for more interesting results. Okay, I think I'm seeing your, your, your point here. Maybe it's kind of like, if I enjoy something more, I'll be more motivated to learn it. And I'll be, I'll be more yep. kind of passionate or, or focused or 
just enwrapped in the whole experience. Yep. Okay. That's fair enough. Of all the readings you've done, was there one paper that had one finding that when you read it, you just you ju- you just dropped everything and just screamed out to the sky, oh my goodness, I can't believe that I get to do this for a living because I just read the most interesting thing I've ever read in my entire life? Has that ever happened to you? That That's a high bar. That's a pretty high <laughs> bar. Or something similar. Like, or was some, there one, or something you know? close to it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Something may- maybe just mildly exciting that you want to share with us? Something in your readings that was just like, wow. I, I really like a lot of the comparisons across musicians and across different types of musicians and non-musicians. So like I mentioned a little earlier, there's some work that compares jazz musicians, classical musicians, and non-musicians in terms of how well their predictability ratings match up with, say, a computer algorithm. Because the idea being that the algorithm is sort of right in a quantitative sense like based on what it knows it knows what's predictable what's not Mm -hmm. and so the question is like how well do persons internal expectations or explicit ratings match that and what's been found is that uh, musicians are better than non-musicians for for the most part which isn't that surprising and also there's some work that shows jazz musicians have a bit of an edge in terms of like being comfortable with uncertainty and expectancy or changes, which isn't maybe also isn't that surprising because uh, jazz has a lot of improvisation in it. It's sort of characterized by changes and jumps that may be unexpected in Western music. And so it, I think it's cool that it finds that jazz musicians kind of do a better job of sort of dealing with uncertainty in music. Although I will say the difference is small. I don't want to start right. a, a war between <laughs> jazz and classical musicians. For sure. We are we are totally unbiased here at Abstract, colon, the future of science. We just want to get the, the science out there. So, hey, jazzies, classies, if that's what you call yourselves, everybody just enjoy everyone's music. We're all friends. We're all friends. But the jazz people seem to know a little bit more about predictability, but that's fine. Okay. Excellent. So in the introduction, you also mentioned that some of your interests lie in psycholinguistics, which just happens to be what I spent almost a year studying back when I started my master's degree. So music, as we've said, is at this point more of an art than a science. What say you of linguistics? Speech itself does have rises and falls in pitch, and it does have timbre. So the different variations in speech might be akin to the variations in music. And how does that make us interpret the music differently from the speech? Have I lost you? Nope, I'm 100% on board. Okay. So a lot of my earlier research interests was in language and in bilingualism, and I've always been interested in comparisons between language and music. The idea being that uh, is, is learning music or learning an instrument similar to learning a second language? The more I learn about that, the more I read about that, the less I'm sure, to be honest. It gets pretty hard. Or in fact, the more I learn, the more I'm starting to think, no, they're pretty different. Mm -hmm. But as far as things I've talked about, like expectancy and predictability in music, all of these concepts can actually be applied very directly to language. So the basic idea or theory between what I study 
is what's called statistical learning theory. Basically, what I talked about before, how you grow up hearing music all over the place. You hear music everywhere you go. You can't help but hear it. And based on all of that passive listening of music around you, you sort of developed all these internal expectations of what music's supposed to sound like. Mm -hmm. That's basically how you become familiar with the music of your culture, whether you want to or not. The origins of statistical learning are actually in language, because a lot of people think that's exactly how infants learn language. Basically, as young children, we're exposed to people talking around us, and we pick up the regularities and the norms of our language. And so uh, there are some similarities there in terms of like how we learn things and how we develop expectations, but there are definitely differences in terms of what music and language is say to adult listeners mm -hmm. i mean look one of the main things that i could see as being a, an inherent difference between the two is while people are exposed to language and music people can't really help but learn a language but like you said you only really started to learn right. how to play an instrument when you were in your teen years so it seems like language is maybe more fundamental to reality as a human being than, let's say, understanding music at, at a very deep level, right? I might not right. even be able to explain to you the grammar of English, but I have it just embedded in my brain. Right. But I will say, I'll, I'll argue this, I'm far from an evolutionary psychologist, but maybe it is that you're essentially forced to use language. We're all forced to use language to communicate. We almost have no choice, essentially. So we learn language, we practice language, we use it to communicate, and that's how we develop language skills. There's nothing really forcing you to express yourself musically, as far as I know. I love that. That's a great point. That's a great point. So maybe the, the external pressures are what have led to the current reality as we see it. And that language is kind of center stage, with music maybe being in the periphery, but also pervasive. Yeah. Okay. This is, this is super cool. This brings us to our final question. This has been eye-opening. I love this discussion. I wish we could talk for days. Imagine that you are standing at the foot of a giant auditorium that seats a thousand people, and it is packed to the brim. You have their undivided attention. What do you say? What do you tell them? Oh, boy. In terms of music? In terms of uh... anything. You can interpret this in any way shape or form academic or otherwise see given that i'm not one to ramble without uh, pretense usually i i like the ability to have the safety net of people coming to an event for something <laughs> oh that's exactly it they are there to see you so you can almost imagine this as people coming to see you, and now you need to figure out why it is that they are here to see you specifically. What is it that you ah, have to okay. offer, right? I see. Why would a thousand people come to listen to what you have to say? And if they did, what would you tell them? See, okay. So, yeah. Some of the things I tell them would be what we've talked about today. I think it would be really fun to tell people how we learn music say unconsciously or through this passive exposure to music. I think that's always fun for people to hear the, the idea that basically you learn music through everyday life or you learn what music is supposed to sound like through everyday life. And I think I would encourage people to 
be a little more aware of how they experience music and how they listen to music and maybe of the kind of music that they're open to because based on the things we talked about say within a culture there are a lot of similarities in like musical structure and patterns i think there isn't a lot of excuse for people to say i don't like this type of music or i don't like this or i don't like this i think a lot of people say i don't like this say genre of music because they've decided they don't like it and in in effect, there's probably a lot of music in that genre that would sound good because it follows a lot of similar patterns to music in other in other genres because the foundation is sort of the same. So I think telling people this idea of like how they experience music and how they learn music and listen to music and maybe opening their minds of like what they should be open to hearing because there are similarities across all of it, I think. Excellent. So folks... Open your minds to the music, the art and the science of it all. Let yourself become awash in emotions. Let the pitches rise and fall, the timbres reverberate through your skin, all the way through to the follicles and at the top of your head. I'm Jeremy. This has been Alex Albury with an immense amount of knowledge. Thank you for sharing this with us, Alex. This was honestly just super fun and eye-opening, so thanks for being on the show. It has been fun. Thanks, Jeremy. Take it easy. Thanks for listening. If you liked what you heard, you can check us out at abstractcast on Instagram. If you have any feedback, please feel free to leave a comment on the post for the current or any previous episode that you might have listened to. Or if you're a graduate student and you would like to be on the podcast yourself, you can drop us a line at abstractcast at gmail.com. This podcast will be released weekly on Sundays and is also available on Spotify. Apple Podcasts, and pretty much everywhere else you're going to find podcasts. So feel free to check us out around the internet. Until then, take it easy.